Welcome to Most Popular, the podcast I started for you, my sociology students, but I also secretly hope Oprah hears it someday. <laughs> uh, I am Dr. Adrian Trierbenik, and I have an episode today that is focused on education and the sociological approach to education. So as we will talk about in class, there are many layers to the sociology of education, particularly when it comes to um, school funding and how money is allocated in schools, how children are serviced in schools who may not be able to get access to funds for things like meal plans or mental health. And in that vein, um, I started this episode, or I, I... set out with the intention of um, talking about Mary McLeod Bethune, who I have been reading about for years and who I have been interested in for a while. And I thought that I would do a podcast that was sort of like a bio of her. And then as I started doing more research on what has been done on her, I found that students at um, Bethune-Cookman University, which is the the university that bears her name, had already done that. And they had done it way better than I could with my um, microphone and recording in my closet. So I am going to link to that as uh, part of this episode. Um, But I did want to tell you a little bit about her, just because she is what started my wheels turning. In 1904, Mary McLeod Bethune opened what was called at the time the Daytona Daytona Literary and Industrial Training School for Negro Girls, and eventually that would become Bethune-Cookman University. So this was located in Daytona still. Bethune-Cookman is a HBCU in Central Florida. Throughout her time, the school evolved and grew throughout the, the years that she was alive. But what is interesting about her, well, there's several things that are interesting about her, but what is interesting about her is the creation of this school. She could have she could have rested with that. She could have let that be. Instead, she just, she committed her life to service. She was a person that truly believed in education and wanted to make sure that racial and gender equity was um, a central focus in our country and in the way we were evolving as a country. So, uh, for example, in Uh, 1936, she was friends with Eleanor Roosevelt, and in 1936, she became the highest-ranking African-American woman in government when uh, President Franklin Roosevelt named her the Director of Negro Affairs of the National Youth Youth Administration. She was also part of what was termed FDR's unofficial Black Cabinet. She organized conferences. She talked about racism in this country. She, uh, in 1940, she was the vice president of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored Persons, or what we call the NAACP. She held that position for the rest of her life. 1942, during the Second World War, she created the Women's Army Corps. She uh, made sure that it was racially integrated. She was the only woman of color on the founding conference of the United Nations in 1945. She was a businesswoman. She owned a resort in Daytona. She co-founded a life insurance company called Central Life Insurance Company of Tampa. She is the only she's the first African American to be represented with a state statue in the National Statutory Hall collection at the Capitol. So I've been told um, when you walk into the Capitol, not on the tour, but like when you walk in as like this going to work, the first thing you see is the statue of uh, Mary McLeod Bethune, which I, is just fantastic. 
she was also on a postage postage stamp in 1985, which is a great piece of trivia. So when I started out trying to decide what I wanted to talk about with this episode, she was the first person that came to mind. Uh, And then as I started to do more research, I discovered um, some folks on the Orange County School Board that I thought were very much in line with what I try and talk about to you all in class when we're talking about education. So in this episode, you're going to hear from two people. The first is um, member Vicki Elaine Felder, who is on the Orange County School Board. She represents District 5. I'll do a more proper introduction to her in a second. And the second is uh, Eileen Wiegand, who is uh, has many hats, um, but the, the best way to explain her is that she is a social worker in um, Montgomery County in Blacksburg, Virginia, which is in a very rural part of um, Virginia. Um, If you're looking at a map, it's almost smack in between West Virginia and like the Knoxville, Tennessee area. So as you listen to these two folks talk, you'll hear them talk a lot about how inequity has played out in our school systems and also what people are doing to work with kids. So I'll start with member Vicki Elaine Felder. Member Felder has been in the classroom for almost 40 years for Orange County Public Schools. She has taught classes in areas of drama, film study as a narrative, American literature, British literature, African-American literature. She's taught at Dr. Phillips High School, uh, Maynard Evans High, Maynard Evans High, Edgewater High, and Jones High. She has served as an English tutor for students from Edgewater High and for the Rollins College Upward Bound Program. She attended Eccleson and Washington Shores Elementary School, Carver Middle, and the historic Jones High. She holds a Bachelor's of Arts degree from Spelman College, which we talk about a little bit, and a Master of Arts degree in Speech and Theater from Kansas State University. She completed postgraduate work in English from UCF and has completed work in cinema and film study through the Tisch School of the Arts in New York. Uh, She is incredibly accomplished, and when I started, um, I told her this at the end of our conversation, but when I started trying to figure out who I would want to talk to, she was at the top of my list, so I was just very flattered and excited to have this conversation, and I hope you enjoy. Well, I was uh, educated uh, in Orange County, with Orange County Public Schools, and as a matter of fact, the schools where I am, uh, I have jurisdiction over those are all the schools that I attended. Hmm. And uh, I uh, I wanted to, and my mother was a school teacher and dean for 43 years. So my desire was to do it because I wanted to do something. I thought that I could be a little bit more, I could help in a better way if I were on the board rather than just be teaching at one school. And I just felt like I, I would have a much larger capacity to help students and to help parents and, you know, to make a difference uh, with schools in my community. Because District 5, uh, 80% of the schools in my district are on free and reduced lunches. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, I have some schools, the entire school is on free and reduced lunch. So that, that suggests that there's a need, there's an economic uh, need there in the, in the community. They're going to need help. They may not be able to have exposure to certain things that other communities will because of their economic position. And what a lot of people think is racism is really not racism, it's racism, mm-hmm. which means that you 
have been given an opportunity that others have not. So your reaction or your response is going to be different because of your exposure mm-hmm. or your lack of exposure. So I wanted to try to bridge that gap. What kind of student were you? I was a very good student. Uh, they used to call me a bookworm. <laughs> I, I didn't think I was as smart as I as I wanted to be. Like I wasn't smart that bright in math and science. I may have gotten a B or C, but English literature, theater, the languages, history, I had all all A's. I graduated number uh, eight in my class, and I got accepted to Vassar, Simmons, uh, University of Florida, uh, FSU, Florida A&M University, Bethune-Cookman University. They gave me a music scholarship to play piano. I got a music scholarship at Hampton. I got accepted at UCLA. I got accepted at Fisk, and I got accepted at Spelman. Wow. My grandaunt, who's my, my grandmother's sister, graduated Spelman's first class. So my family, my parents decided whether I wanted to or not that I was going to go to Spelman. And my mother always wanted to be a, be, to be a teacher because she said when I was little, I used to line my dolls up, and I had a blackboard. And it'd be 9, 10 o'clock at night, Mama tell me time to go to bed. I said, no, I'm still teaching. I want to ask you a little bit about teaching. Um, what do you hope to achieve with, when, you, when you're when you in a classroom, what do you hope to achieve with the students? What are you hoping that they get from having you? Well, every teacher hopes that they get a good understanding. But most times that understanding does not come until after five or six, maybe seven days of teaching of that same subject area or that same unit because children learn at different levels and you have to try a variety of things to reach a variety of students. All children in the same class and you may have low levels or medium levels or high levels or you may have some children that have a 504 plan so you have to, instead of giving them 10 spelling words, you have to give them five and you may need to do differentiating uh, uh, teaching with students where you have a group with you and then you move and then you may sometimes have to utilize those students who get it right off the bat and give them a leadership position to work with a partner uh, with with students who are struggling. But you can only do that if you have complete control of your class and the students trust you as their leader Mm -hmm. and that they will buy in to to what you want them to do as their classroom leader, their classroom teacher. Uh, You have to make sure as a teacher that children buy into the lesson. You have to find a hook to to cause them to be interested. You have to. I, I I call myself a eclectic teacher. I do traditional, non-traditional. For example, I was introducing uh, Declaration of Independence. I also taught at the same time the Declaration of Sentiment that dealt with the women in that position. But the way I opened up that unit when they came in, I played Alicia Keys song. This girl is on fire. Talk about that and interpret what that meant. What does she mean by that? How how is this woman on fire? What does that mean? And then when I got ready to introduce the Victorian era to my 12th grade British Lit class, I had all of the uh, girls leave out of the room and I told the guys that they were in charge. They had to tell, they had two things they had to tell the girls to do. I told the girls outside, I said, this is part of your grade. You must acquiesce. They said, what do you mean? I said, you must agree to doing. I always use words they're not accustomed to using so they can, I can build vocabulary with them. I said, you must acquiesce. I said, this is the Victorian era. And so when they came in, 
And I told the guys, Shorter, you can't tell nobody to do anything obscene because if you do, I'm going to write you behind up. <laughs> I said, but you know, little things. And so I had them do that. And then uh, then I, after they did that for about 10 minutes, 15 minutes, and I sat everybody down, I said, let's talk about how you felt. What are you, what do you, how do you, how did you feel about that? What were you thinking about? And some guys were like, wow, men control women like that? Some girls were like, God, man, I, I don't know if I like that. I say, but that was the norm. And hence is, and then I've directed them to my PowerPoint, say, hence, welcome to the Victorian era. I just teach, when I introduced, uh, I was teaching American literature. I taught the Declaration of Independence, the, 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 uh, the Declaration of Sentiments, and then when I dealt with the Constitution, I also implemented Frederick Douglass's what to the slave is the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. So now people are being, you know, the, the governor and the state, is uh, teachers are feeling some sense of apprehension about mixing in black literature for fear. They may have another race of children feeling bad, but I make sure my students, I've taught Amistad. I had a whole teaching packet from Amistad mm -hmm. that I used that, I was, that was sent to me from Debbie Allen, who was the producer, executive producer yep. for Amistad, who was, it was directed by Steven Spielberg. I had a whole teaching packet. And so, and I had, you know, a little white girl stand up, you know, she just was crying and saying how sorry. She wanted to apologize for the treatment that white people did. I said, baby, sit down. I said, listen here. That the white people living today don't have nothing to do with what happened to these people back then. Say, nobody here living was living back then. So you don't have to apologize for the behavior. Mm -hmm. This is history. This is what happened. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I, I always try to implement. Uh, well, that kind of leads the other two questions I wanted to ask. I'm curious, you mentioned the free lunch work that you're doing. Can you talk about how a school board helps with things like that? What your what your place in that is? The board's position is to make sure children have a safe environment totally. Yeah. That they're fed, that they they meet their needs. And if we have children who cannot afford to buy lunch, then we must provide lunch for them because we want to provide them with an education. And if coming to school means they need to eat, then we feed them. And none of the children are made to feel embarrassed. Some of them do, but we don't want them to feel that way. When you got 100% of your school on free and reduced lunch, nobody feels embarrassed. And we try to make sure that the free and reduced lunches are the same lunches that everybody else gets that they pay. You know, we try to make it as indiscreet as possible because kids will be kids, you know, and they will make fun or what have you, and that's not what we're trying to do. It's important that children are free to learn and not have to be hungry. So many of our kids probably were hungry during the break. Mm -hmm. They didn't have food and probably didn't get Christmas gifts. They probably barely had a Christmas meal. If their mom got up, a dad got up to go get the free turkey or whatever and cook it. I mean, poverty in America is real. They're talking about we're the richest country. This poverty is real in this country. Do you understand me? Mm -hmm. And children are hungry. Mm -hmm. And we try to make sure that they don't go to bed hungry. So we have programs where they get food in the afternoon. And then during the break, they give them, like, uh, harvest, uh, they, they give them food, like uh, vegetables, they get a bag yeah. of vegetables stuff to take home. So the second person you're going to hear from is Eileen Wiegand. 
Eileen is a school-based clinician in the elementary school system, so the K-5 through system, in southwest Virginia in Montgomery County. She is also a fellow sociologist, so if you're wondering what do folks with sociology degrees do, we help people, and we help children especially, <laughs> at least in Eileen's case. I have known Eileen for several years. We became friends when I lived in Blacksburg, when I went to Virginia Tech many moons ago. And the work she does is work that is very close to her heart, working with children and helping families. And I think what's interesting about what she's going to talk about is she's going to give the perspective of uh, working in a school from someone that's that's not a teacher, that is um, there for the, the counseling, mental health, um, helping part, but isn't assigned a classroom. Um, this is not to say that teachers are not caring, counseling folks. That's not at all what I'm trying to get at. Uh, but being a school counselor is different. So I hope you enjoy our conversation with Eileen Weekend. So I work for the local mental health agency. So that's New River Valley Community Services. So I work in a partnership within the schools. So I'm, you know, MCPS, you know, is aware of what I do. And then I get clients who need more long-term mental health help and support than the school counselor can do. You're in sure. Southwest Virginia. Um, what's the area like there? Okay, so it's um, rural, and yet it is a home to Virginia Tech, which is one of, you know, a top-tier school. So, and it is very a very popular school with Northeastern um, students, I would say. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of folks from Northern Virginia, New Jersey, uh, what have you, and it has rapidly... Uh, become more and more gentrified and more and more uh, housing for students that is out of control. Currently, I have a lot of, I have a number of client families who are homeless because of all of these converging issues in a town that is um, making money hand over fist. Right, with the, the university being there. Yes, it, the university drives everything here. You know, you could go to work in a factory down in Pulaski. They have the Volvo uh, factory, but honestly, that's that's it. And it's um, it's Appalachia, so um, you have differing mentalities about mental health um, with families. So that that has been a challenge. Um, there are some referrals I get that will never accept help. So mm. it's it's. It's fascinating. There's an Appalachian mindset that is uh, against that kind of thing. And I understand uh, to some degree why, you know, I kind of represent the state, although I'm not the state, you know what I mean? What kinds of things? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Um, what kinds okay. of things do you do with, with the kids? Like, what kind of kids do you see just like as a regular, on a regular basis? So most of my, um, my caseload is funded by Medicaid. Mm -hmm. um, I used, used to have a lot of private pay kids, but um, the way we had set up the payment, it was not working for um, legalities, I, I guess I could say, and insurance. Um, it's, so what I do, <laughs> I am both a counselor a social worker and I at sometimes am like an aid or therapeutic day treatment type person, which is a whole other job. But in small schools, 
you're not going to get one of those. So I will go in and work with high knee plate clients. So it, it varies. And I, so I work with children and their families. Parents agree to, so I have HIPAA. My parents agree to work with me. We have a whole packet of releases and, and things like that so that they are protected. It, it's, an, it's a unique situation because kids know who I am, that don't work with me. And they know who my kids are. So it's not like I'm really telling, but the kids know. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. Like the kids know why why a child would be coming to talk to you. Yeah. So some of my kids are like severe ADHD, trauma behaviors, coming from abusive backgrounds, from, from as severe as that, or like death in the family is that kind of thing, to just really struggling with. Uh, being a foster kid or something like that, you know, some of it's not too intense, but some of it is really intense. So it varies. Uh, My caseload varies in terms of extremes. We had a couple of years ago, we had, so the town, so, so much matters where you live matters. We have several trailer parks. That is where a lot of my families reside. The town of Blacksburg wanted to consolidate or get rid of some of the Givens Lane trailer park area. So this company came in and said, we're going to build senior living and low-income housing. So we had an influx of of, uh, low-income families who, if they lived in Blacksburg for like two years, they could get a voucher for a bigger, better place somewhere else. And some could stay, like some might stay, but I, you know, this is probably not a popular opinion, but seeing it firsthand, I saw um, a big influx of African-American families. I had families from D.C. and across um, some North Carolina, different places that were – Blacksburg really had a hard time adjusting to those families moving mm. to that area. Mm-hmm. They put up cameras all over the apartment complex. Uh-huh. They did spot inspections. I happened to be in a house while there were – because uh, I do home visits, so I go out to homes and I visit with families, and so that's like another part of the social worker part, I would say. I also link the families to things in the community they mean may need, like Christmas mm-hmm. store stuff, and I happened to be there one time where uh, I was talking to a family, and we just got to talking, and I ended up staying there a while, um, and they did the inspection while I was there, and the mom said to me, she said, you know, they're never as nice as when and they've never been nice to me before. It's because you're here. And, like, <laughs> and you meaning you a white woman. You're right. Yeah. And then when I came out of the building, my car had been towed. <laughs> I was like, and they did that to the residents. They would tow them. They would, um, it was awful. My people that were living there were like, mental health wise, like instead of pulling back, and reconstructing our curriculum, which as the leaders, I would hope that education would do. They have not. They have one school counselor, and we it's a small school, but they could use another one for the entire school. I love being there because I can have the long-term kids, but I, I would like to do more for more kids. It's just a question of how kids come to me. Mm-hmm. So they're referred by the school, if that makes sense. Yeah, so she, uh, school counselors meet, and they have these team meetings and things. So I'd, I'd love to change some of that. 
I'd love to actually have like mental health days at school, like a half day of just like, here's how we do self-care. Here's how we do coping mechanisms. And like my, my colleague teaches guidance class, right? She teaches, you know, social emotional learning, but then she also has to counsel the kids that she's seeing, so it feels kind of constant for her. I feel like we need more funding. I feel like we need people to take things really seriously when kids say them. Um, I mm-hmm. also feel like we need discipline versus mental health. It just seems like such a problem that has no ending to it. Like, you all need more money. You all need more opportunities for mental health stuff. You need more ways to get students engaged and keep kids healthy and like all of that stuff is just there. And I don't know, do you do you feel like, this is what I'm asking, what keeps you going? What keeps you motivated with all of that? I make little things that are fun. I still really enjoy the children. Um, we laugh. I, I really do. <laughs> I do these group lunches. It's like this ridiculous lunch bunch that comes into my room and all the teachers are like, oh, that's going to be fun. And I'm like, yes, it will. <laughs> and I pick up like, I got like a steel drum. So they mini little mini steel drum and they play that because I know music and movement and all of that will help with trauma in their little bodies. So mm-hmm. we do that. I get the little ukulele and the little drum set. And so, yes, I am next to the library, but she deals with me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we love each other because we love books. So uh, that's really it. Just connecting with, I, I get surprised by myself because sometimes I'm like, oh gosh, I'm going to go to this house and I don't know how it's going to go. And, and then I'll see there's evidence that everybody's really, they're trying really hard um, they're just struggling with mental health themselves, like a lot of my families are. So it, that gives me hope because they really do try. And that's really why I keep, every time I think I'm going to leave, I stay for the kids. It wears me out physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally. <laughs> yeah. uh, so I, like every break, I collapse for like a week or so. Every summer, it takes me a while to get that strength back, I would say. But I do love the kids, so I think that's why I stay. I know you do. So thank you, everyone, for listening. I'd like to say a big thank you to member Vicki Elaine Felder and for her staff for helping me arrange this conversation with her. I'd like to thank my friend Eileen Wiegand for sharing her experience of working in rural communities and schools. I don't know if you guys caught this or not, but she used the word Appalachia, and I'm hoping that you all understand that people from Appalachia say Appalachia, not Appalachia. And if you take nothing else away from this, which I sincerely hope isn't the case, it is that it is pronounced Appalachia. Thanks, you guys, for listening.